0: So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been working our way over the last several months now, very slowly, kind of line by line, verse by verse, through a letter that the Apostle Paul, who was a leader in the early Christian movement, we've been looking at this letter that he wrote to a church in the first first century city of Corinth. Now, Up to this point in Paul's letter, he has been dealing with a problem that was reported to him about divisions in the church. He had heard this earful from Chloe's household that there were these divisions, infighting within the church. And so the first four chapters, he's attacking the divisions in the church, and he's calling them to unity. Now, the problem of divisions is something that I think for a lot of us is a common problem. It's something we're fairly familiar with in churches. But when we move now into chapter 5, Paul opens up a new problem that for a lot of us feels like a bit of strange territory. He says, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Which, that's just gross, isn't it? I mean, it's just disturbing. But even more, I think, shocking than the problem is the solution that the apostle proposes in our text, verse 4. He says, and so when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Happy Father's Day, you know, if you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, maybe you're new to Christianity, you're investigating things, I just want to say, I'm really sorry you came to church today. <laughs> this is one of those passages in the Bible that I think is, is is kind of one of the things we oftentimes pass over, we ignore, we try to forget about that's there in our Bibles. Uh, we're afraid if we invite somebody to church, and this is the text that I'm preaching on, This morning, we actually had three of our friends visiting with us from Albuquerque. There were three young, young girls that were friends of my daughters. And I can just imagine them going back to their parents tonight and their parents, like, oh, oh, so you guys went to church today. And uh, what did Mr. Swanson preach about? Oh, that's awkward. But it is one of those texts that we we want to pass over. I I preached in the book of 1 Corinthians, I don't know, a few years back, and I preached in every passage just about in the entire book, but I didn't preach in chapter 5. I actually went on vacation during the week we are supposed to be looking at this text, and I had had my my youth pastor preach on the text, which was definitely a bad idea. But while this is a passage that a lot of us might rather forget is in the Bible, what I want you to see this morning is that this passage is probably one of, I don't know, one of the eight, nine, ten most important passages in the entire Bible on the nature and the character of the church. Because this is a text that actually addresses the issue of church discipline. There's only two Major passages in the entire Bible that really go into at length and in detail about church discipline. And this is one of those texts. And some, some people refer to it as a text on excommunication, which basically means expelling somebody from communion. Or, uh, some, or maybe more colloquial, we refer to it as kicking someone out of the church. And so in some ways, it's an uncomfortable text, but what I want you to see is that this text, perhaps among all the different texts in the New Testament, is one of the most significant and important texts for us understanding the nature and the character of the church. And so what we're going to do today is I want to walk through this text, we're going to kind of carefully walk through it, we're going to look at it under four headings, and then I want to stand back and I want to ask the question, what does this text teach us about first, discipline, and secondly, about the church. Are you guys ready? All right, well, ready or not? Here we go. Chapter five, verse one. Number one, I want you to see the problem that's being addressed. Look at what he says again in verse one. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, when it says there a man has his father's wife, it's not speaking of this young man's mother It's rather speaking about his stepmother. So oftentimes, a father might become widowed, and then he would remarry. And it was not uncommon at different times in the Greco-Roman world for somebody's father to actually die, and then for the son to marry his stepmother. It was odd, as it might seem to us today, and actually, it was illegal in the first century Greco-Roman empire. And yet, nonetheless, it was kind of tolerated. It was people kind of turn a blind eye to it. But there was another kind of incest that could happen in the first century culture, and that was where maybe the stepmother would start to seduce her new stepson, and they would get romantically involved together while the dad was still alive in an honor-shame culture. This would bring extreme shame to the father. Talk about not a good thing to uncover on Father's Day. Amen? And this is what was happening in first century Corinth in the church. This man was romantically involved with his stepmother while his father was still living. And Paul says, the pagans don't even tolerate that. In fact, if it was uncovered that you were engaged in this kind of terrible thing, in the Greco-Roman world, you could actually be exiled. You would have your property stripped from you, your land stripped from you, your citizens stripped from you, and you would be exiled to a deserted island for the rest of your life. Isn't that an awesome way to dole out punishment to people? You say, I don't know. Maybe it's not. But I think what's interesting in our text is that Paul isn't just going after the man who's committed this heinous sin, but he's actually going after the church for implicitly condoning the sin. Look at what he says in verse two. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you rather not to mourn? He said, look, When this came out, he says, you guys should have been grieving over this. You all should have been repenting over this. But instead, you're boasting. You're being arrogant. Now, why on earth would they be boasting about a guy in their church who's caught up in this kind of heinous sin? Well, one answer to that question that's been proposed is that perhaps the church in Corinth had spent way too much time in the average American university, where they were schooled in the values of tolerance— And of course, tolerance, as is taught oftentimes in America, is basically that value that you should never judge anyone for doing anything at all except if they're being intolerant of something that you think should be tolerant of, right? But I I think that that's probably actually to read... The book of Corinthians, through the, the lens of first, 21st century American culture, that's probably not what they were boasting about. They weren't just boasting, oh, we're so tolerant, we'll even tolerate this guy. It's not so much that they were, they were boasting about this guy's sin, they were actually boasting in spite of this guy's sin. Or put it like this, the real issue, the real reason why they're boasting wasn't because they were proud of their tolerance, I think rather they were probably proud of the social status of this member of their community. So for the last few months, we've been talking about how in first century culture, they were ultra obsessed with rank and status, kind of where you stood on the social status ladder. And one of the ways in which you could improve your status was by connecting yourself to somebody who was well wealthy and who was prestigious and who was of high rank and status, and because they were important by connecting yourself to them, your own rank and status was improved. And it's likely the case that the church in Corinth was status conscious, and they had a guy in their community who was wealthy, who was prestigious, who was powerful, and it was this guy who was committing this heinous sin. And so they all ignored it, and rather they boasted in this prestigious guy being a part of their community. And Paul says, your boasting is not good. Stop it. And he rebukes them. But what I want you to see again is that the real problem that Paul is addressing is not so much this man's sin, though that certainly is a problem. Rather, it's the church's failure to confront the sin, In other words, the church in Corinth was failing to be the church. Or we could put it like this, the church, you and I as a part of this community, we have a moral responsibility for the people who call themselves members of SMCC. Or we could put it like this, conversely, if you are a part of this church, you have a moral responsibility to this community. We are accountable and we are responsible. And this is what it means to be a part of the church. And so Paul, though, is confronting this group because they, they're not acting like the church. They're not dealing with this guy who's caught up in this egregious, flagrant, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Paul's like, what are you doing? And notice he, he calls them to a prescription to the problem. We'll go back, whoops. Oh. Are you guys getting dizzy watching? There it is, the prescription. And what's the prescription? He essentially says, I want you to decisively and publicly basically kick this guy's butt out of the church. Well, he doesn't exactly put it like that. He puts it like this in verse two. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's saying, kick him out of the church. And then a little bit later, he uses a metaphor. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so cleanse out the old leaven. He says, get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the junk in the church. Well, we've got issues with the PowerPoints. We better take care of that so you guys aren't looking at the, let's see, is that, come on. There, there it is. You guys can clap now, you can feel good about that. So here's a prescription. Kick the guy out of the church. He says, let him be removed. He says, remove the leaven. A little bit more strongly at the very end of the passage, he puts it like this. He says, purge the evil person from among you. He's actually drawing upon the language of Deuteronomy chapter 22. It's what the children of Israel were to do when there was somebody in their midst who was caught up in some flagrant, egregious sin. He says, purge them out And then more strongly, the most strong of all, he says in verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with you, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, what does that mean? Like, why on earth is that the prescription? I mean, what are we even talking about? Deliver this man over to Satan? I mean, what are are we supposed to have some cultic sort of ceremony where we all dress up in white robes and maybe somebody comes out, John Stethers, for example, in a red cape and we symbolically hand somebody over to him and he drags him out and throws him out of the church? Yes, that's exactly what he's calling us to do. What are are we even talking about here? I mean, what what does it mean? I mean, What does it look like to hand somebody over to Satan? What are we even talking about? Well, I think to understand what Paul is speaking of here, you need to look at it in the broader context. And in the broader context, he draws upon the analogy of the Passover. And look at what he says in verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. And again, I want you to listen for language of the Passover. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the level of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now a quick two, three minute lesson about the Old Testament festival of the Passover. Passover. So some of you will know because you read your Bible or because you watched the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt if you're a millennial. Um, God came to Pharaoh who was this oppressor of his people, Israel. And he commanded Pharaoh to let Israel go from their slavery and from their oppression. And Pharaoh said no. And so God comes back at Pharaoh with these nine plagues to try to threaten him. And the very last plague is the most severe of them all because an angel of death comes through the land of Israel and takes the life of the firstborn. And on that night, when the angel of death came through the land, the children of Israel were asked to put the blood of the Passover lamb above their doorpost. So that when the angel of death flew over, there would be a distinction, a distinction between the covenant people of God who lived underneath the blood of the Passover lamb and the people of Egypt. And so those who were in the covenant people of God would be protected, while those outside would be under the threat of destruction. And I think what Paul is doing is he's calling this language to mind to say to the church, You are the new Israel. You are the true people of God who live underneath the blood of the true Passover lamb, Jesus. And within the covenant community, you are spiritually safe under the power and the authority of Jesus, who is the Lord and the victor over all of the powers of sin and death and darkness. You are safe in Christ. But outside of the covenant community, there are forces of death and destruction, And if you put your life underneath the lordship of Jesus and you submit to him and you live within his covenant community and and under his goodwill for life, you will experience life and flourishing. But if you put yourself outside of that, you will find yourself subject to the forces of death and destruction and the God of this age, the accuser, the Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the one who now works in the sons of disobedience in the language of Ephesians chapter 2. And so do you see what he's saying? He's saying, kick them out of the church and let them experience the full weight of their own self-destructive behavior as they go out in the world. Now, someone says, that still sounds harsh, doesn't it? A few weeks ago, I was, at a, uh, I w- I was visiting a rehab center. We were getting a family member checked in. She's been a seven, eight-year meth addict. And I was talking to a former meth addict who was uh, one of the clinicians at the um, rehab center. And we said, how did you get off this drug? She said, I'm one of the lucky ones. She says, I I did this for 10 10 years, and there's not a lot of us left. And she said, my parents came to me one day, and they said, you know, honey, if you want to get well, We will move heaven and earth. We will spend every dollar we have. We will spend every ounce of our time and energy to help you get well. But we will not spend another ounce of our life, and we will not spend another dollar enabling you to continue to be an addict. And she said it was that that finally allowed her to hit rock bottom. And when she hit rock bottom, she finally looked up. And I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, Let the person out, let them experience the full extent of their own self-destructive behavior. If they get exiled to some destined island and they get stripped of their citizenship and they lose all their possessions, maybe they'll wake up. And he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? It is for his good so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there's the prescription. Deal with people who are living in egregious, flagrant, unrepentant sin. And if that's you in here, there's always got to be a few of us. Maybe you're in a place in your life right now and you know it and you are well hidden and nobody else sees it. You need to come clean. You need to come out. You need to confess and you need to repent. So Paul says, look, here's the problem. You are letting this guy go on in your midst and nobody is saying anything. Here's the prescription. You need to name it. You need to act decidedly. You need to kick this guy out of the church. But that raises the third question. What exact, how how does that happen? Like, how how do you do this? How does church discipline work anyway? And let's talk for a minute about kind of the mechanics of church discipline. Notice he gives a process in our text. So he moves from the problem to the prescription to the process. And it's in verse 3. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. And so here's the process. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan. And so do you notice what he says here? He says, look, first, he says this, this process, number one, it involves a decisive act, a decisive corporate act where the church gathers together and the church makes a judgment about somebody who is living in this kind of sin. Now, a couple weeks ago, if you were here, you heard me preach on the passage about how Christians are not to pronounce judgment. In fact, Paul says it that explicitly. He said, do not pronounce judgment before it's time. And now here he tells the church, I have pronounced judgment, and he says to them, you are to pronounce judgment. So what is it? Is the church supposed to judge or is the church not supposed to judge? What do you think, class? Yes. And of course, the answer is, is that it's judgment in two different senses. The judgment in chapter 4 is the judgment of the individual. It is you and I, nitpicky people, who are always walking around with our self-righteous opinions about everything, and we are free to disclose our opinions and our judgments on her and him and them. And uh, no, that, And you're just rattling off all over the place. Paul says, stop it. But what he's talking about in chapter five is not the individualistic judgment of a self-righteous Christian, he's talking here about the collective judgment of a spirit-indwelt community of believers. Do you see the distinction? And that's why he says, when you are all assembled together, this is the collective voice of the church. In other words, the church does not leave church discipline in the hands of some vindictive pastor. Pastor who's out to get somebody, church discipline is given into the hands of the community as a whole. It's a collective decision. And notice, it is put into the hands of the community in conjunction not only with the voice of the community, but with the apostolic authority of the apostle. Look at what he says. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment. Now, why does it matter that Paul pronounces judgment? Well, because he's an apostle and he carries the authority of Jesus with his own judgments. And so when the church gathers together in the collective church in conversation with the authoritative scriptures, the authoritative witness of the apostles in the New Testament, when those two things come together and a judgment is made about a person's life, Paul says the authority and the spirit and the power of Jesus is right there to make the decision. Verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. And I think Paul is probably echoing a teaching that Jesus himself gave in Matthew 18. Remember when Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm right there in their midst. Do you guys remember that? And oftentimes we use that in prayer meetings, you know. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm right there in their midst. And that's probably true. But in Matthew 18, he's not talking about a prayer meeting. He's talking about a church discipline meeting. In context, you know, a guy has been approached by one person, then three people, and then a group of people, and then finally it's given over to the whole church. And the whole church makes a decision, and they bind this decision on earth. And Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound on heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. And wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm right there binding in your midst. And so you have the community, you have the apostle, and you have Jesus all collectively coming down to exercise church discipline. And so it involves, number one, a collective action. That's part of the process. But secondly, it involves ongoing exclusion. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral per- people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, of the greedy and the swindlers and the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or a reviler or a drunk or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Boy, that's a word that maybe some fundamentalists need to hear, who walk around spending their time judging everyone outside of the world or outside of the church. Paul says, that's not really my business. My business is to take care of what's happening inside the church. And so part of that judgment, though, involves this ongoing exclusion. So let's take an example. Here is somebody who's caught up in they're abusing their spouse or they're abusing their children, and it comes up, and the church confronts them, and it goes on, and the church confronts them, and it goes on. And finally, this person is excluded. They are kicked out publicly. Now, he says, what is to be your response to this person? And he says, don't associate with anybody who is named a brother and is persisting in flagrant, egregious sin." That word associate with them actually uh, could be translated. In fact, I have a a, a Greek uh, commentary on, or a commentary on the Greek text by a a very established scholar, and he said that a better way of translating this phrase associate is don't mix it up with them. And so have you ever been um, baking a cake, and you put all your ingredients in the mixing bowl, and first goes in the flour, then you crack the egg in, and then you pour the milk in, and at first you look down, you can see the distinctions, right? There's the milk, there's the egg, there's the flower, and then you mix it up and all of a sudden there's no more distinctions. It's all mixed up, it's all blended together, and what he's saying here is that there needs to be a distinction among us between those who are walking in faithfulness to Jesus and those who are flagrantly disobeying Jesus and yet calling themselves a brother or a sister. And what is the distinction where they don't all get mixed up? Well, I believe it is the distinction of participating in the common meal, the common worship service. You see, in the first century, when they gathered for worship, they didn't gather in a facility like this, a large facility with lots of pews and everyone looking forward. Rather, they gathered in a group of maybe 30 or 40 people around a table, and they shared together in a common meal. And as part of that common meal was the sacred meal, the Lord's Supper. And what Paul is saying, I believe, when he talks about not eating with them or mixing it up with them, I think what he's saying is they need to be excluded from this special sacred meal, the Lord's Supper, and from your gathering where you share together at table, so that they become aware that they are not okay. But notice he's not calling us to be mean to them. He's not calling us to shun them or shame them. I can remember back when I was in elementary school, there was a kid, and eleme- we were selling these uh, chocolate bars for C's candy. It was like world cl- no, world-class chocolate. Did anybody sell these bars when they were a kid? You walked around the neighborhoods with your kids selling those bars, and uh, we'd collect the money, and we had this competition. It was a Christian school, so they were teaching us good Christian values, competition, making money, profit, etc. But there was a kid, actually, maybe a third grader or something like this, who stole about $100 from somebody's cubby. And it was found out, and this kid was expelled from school. And he lived in the neighborhood, and every day, I can remember this vividly in my head, there was a season in the life of our church where, I mean, of of our school, where this kid would walk home in front of our school, and all of the kids on the playground would go up to the fence, and they'd all start chanting, thief, thief, thief which is just awful, right? Like talk about like public shaming. I mean, this really happened. It sounds like something out of the third Reich or something. Like it's just terrible. Paul is not calling us to shame or to shun. Rather, this is really about the common meal, about the Lord's supper, about their gathering. So the problem, this guy's in church, nobody's dealing with it. The prescription, deal with it, kick him out of the church. The process, it involves a public, corporate decision. It involves ongoing exclusion from the Lord's table. But thirdly, it's going to involve a readiness to forgive. Paul, a little bit later in 2 Corinthians, it turns out, it looks like the church listened to Paul's call. They kicked this guy out of the church But it seems like the guy came to his senses and he repented, but he was still kind of being kicked by the church. They're like, Yeah, well, stay out, you know. And Paul writes to them, he says this. He says, He says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, so that he may be overwhelmed, so that he may not be overwhelmed by his excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Isn't that beautiful? He says, yes, be swift to deal with it, but be even more swift to embrace and forgive and to restore as a part of the community. So you've seen the problem. We've seen the prescription. We've seen the process. Finally, I want you just to see the purpose. We've already talked about this, but it's worth reiterating. Why is it that the church needs to be this kind of community that is exercising church discipline? Well, number one, we said it is for the good of the person so that they reach an end of themselves and they look up and finally receive the grace of God. But it's not just for the good of the person. It's also for Paul, for the good of our community. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's saying a little bit of leaven can have this dramatic and disproportionate effect on a whole loaf. And this little one person who's caught up in this flagrant, egregious sin can actually have an impact on the entire church. And so he says, for the good of the community, you need to take this stuff seriously. Now, what I want to do at this point is I just want to stop. And I just want to talk to us for a minute about what we're, what we're studying here. Can we do that? And I want to talk to you first about discipline and the need for it and also for the church and, it's, and what this, this passage tells us about the church. Because it, it does reveal to us something very profound about discipline and very profound about the church. You know, sometimes I'm asked by people why they should become a member of a local church. They're like, you know, I give, you know, I serve, I'm a part of this church family. Like, why do I have to become a member? You know, why do we have this official membership process? And I tell people the same answer every time. The reason why you become a member of a local church is so that we can excommunicate you. (laughs) Seriously, you can't be excommunicated unless you are a member of a community. Well, you say, well, why is that a good thing? Well, it's because you need a voice that is louder and stronger than your own voice of self-justification that you welcome into your life and that can keep you accountable. And that's why you become a part of a church. I mean, that's one of many reasons why you become a part of a church. It's because you need to be a part of a community of character that calls you out when you got junk in your life. And look there's there's capital D church discipline but long before it ever gets to that point I mean long before this guy ever got into this long intimate relationship with his stepmother I mean come on couldn't somebody have called him out couldn't they couldn't he have at least said you know my stepmother you know she's really trying to seduce me lately and somebody in the church says okay well let's talk about that let's create some lines let's do like long before he got into this egregious sin there should have been some action And listen, you can never have that kind of action in your life if you don't know people and you're not known by people. For church discipline to even make sense, it can't just be that we expect it to happen here because I don't know most of you. And most people in here don't know you. You've got to get into long-term, smaller groups of people where you get your life open and exposed and where people know you and you're known and all of that. And that's one of the reasons why this fall we're going to be launching out a whole new sleigh of uh, community groups, and we're going to be inviting you to get involved in a smaller group where, of, of people who share a meal together, who share your story, who share life, where you are known and where you know others and where you find yourself being moral re- morally responsible for the good of that group, and that group feels accountable for your own ethical life. So number one, this teaches us something about discipline in the church. We need it, and we need it in this community, SMCC, but the only way we can practice it is if we're actually in smaller groups where we know each other. Does that make sense? But secondly, this not only teaches us something about discipline, secondly, this teaches us something about the nature and character of the church. Now listen... It has been said that the church is not a museum for the saints. Rather, it is a hospital for sinners. And that's true, right? The church is a hospital for broken people with messed up lives who need help. And Jesus himself said, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I am the great physician, and I can help you. If your life is a mess, and you are broken, and you're embarrassed, you're ashamed of what's gone on in your life, you are in a good place. The church is for you. The church is a hospital for sinners. But listen well, the church is not just a hospital for sinners, the church is also a gymnasium for saints. This is a community of character where we have expectations on us. Do you realize that God's vision for his church is to be conformed into the likeness and the character of Jesus? Did you know that that's what you're in store for? Like God, that, that is, that's the ultimate end of this thing. You are being shaped and formed. And the spirit who is at work in our life, he is there at work producing love and joy and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and and kindness and all of this fruit. That is what God is doing in your life. The church is a community of people who are being changed into the likeness of Jesus. Or we could put it like this. God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. Amen? You know, we had a... uh, A dear friend of ours out last week, she was my wife and my my daughter's dance instructor from back in New Mexico. Her name is Sherry Costales, and she's just this amazing dance teacher. And as a teacher, she models perfectly those great virtues of a teacher of invitation and challenge. It doesn't matter who you are, you are welcomed. Like, uh, you can be old, you can be young, you can be wide, you can be narrow, you can be tall, you can be small. You can come in and you can have a place in the dance studio, but you are not allowed to remain the dancer you were when you walked in. Now, I don't like this. That's why I never joined the class, because I walk into a dance class and I'm like, but have you seen my moves? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, and she's like, no, honey, that's bad, like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no! And I'm like, just affirm me. And she's like, who? I can't affirm that. Like, we got to challenge that. I love you, but I love you too much to let you keep dancing like that. And listen, that's what the church is about. Like, you know, organizations that are about something serious and good, they know the importance of discipline. You know, if... If if, if the Air Force is going to maintain its integrity, it has to have the authority to discharge people who threaten the integrity of the Air Force. If a classroom is going to have integrity, it's got to have the ability to threaten or to cast people out to expel people who threaten its integrity. If a workforce is going to have integrity, it's got to have the authority to fire people who threaten its integrity when you're about something that's important, when there's integrity to your organization, then this sort of thing matters. And I wonder sometimes if we even believe the church is about anything important. Friends, this is God's community that God is forming in God's world so that he can have a group of people who in their life together begin to reflect in greater and greater ways his own healing, reconciling love and how we live and how we interact with each other.